The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning to you. Good to see that some of you came back. (laughs) Yesterday we uh, kicked off our time together, our theme, Men for the Hour. Uh, considering men and our moment. And uh, we looked at the social, cultural uh, situation which we find ourselves as men today. And I talked about specifically the dualisms that have entered into uh, the thinking of much of the church in the West today, separating life into various compartments and pieces, one part for ourselves and the other part for God. Whereas, in fact, God in Christ owns us lock, stock, and barrel. We belong to Him, and we are to serve Him in every aspect of our lives. Now, this morning, I want to talk about men and the church. Men and the church in terms of the lordship of Jesus Christ. In a sense, I want to really take an aspect of what I said last night now in this first session and focus in on it as we consider who Jesus Christ uh, really is in relationship to the church and the implications that has for us as men. And then uh, after the break, I want to talk about um, our idols and then in our final session, our orders. So let's turn to uh, the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. just want to read a few verses from Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, we'll go from verse 1 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, 1 through 23. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, wherein He has abounded toward us in all wisdom and insight, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which he has purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will 
that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed. You were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love to all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, and what is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the one which is to come, and has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Well, it's quite a statement F.F. Bruce called the book of Ephesians the quintessence of Paulinism, which means you don't read uh, uh, the essence of Pauline theology until you really read the book of Ephesians. Now, apart from the fact that Paul does not know what a full stop is in chapter 1, <clears throat> you can see that there is a massive crescendo building up in Paul's thinking in this passage about the who the Lord Jesus Christ really is. And in verse 22 there, he says that he's been made this head over all things and he's given to the church. I read a little while ago about the Anglican church in England. I'm from England originally, came here 10 years ago now, actually worked for a season within the Anglican church in England. The average age of Members in the Anglican Church today is 61, 61 in England. At a recent general synod in York, the church was warned that it was, quote, impeccably managing itself into failure, impeccably managing itself into failure. In the last 40 years, the number of adult churchgoers has halved and the number of children has dropped by four-fifths. The Reverend Dr. Patrick Richmond, Synod member from Norwich, told the meeting that projections suggested the church would no longer be functionally operative in 20 years, in part because of what they call a demographic time bomb that they say, and I quote, requires urgent national recruitment drive to attract more members. Sounds like the Rotary Club, doesn't it? Where is the Christ of Ephesians 1 in a statement like that? And we are seeing, of course, very similar things across our own country. Today, the United Church of Canada is a real estate board. 
The leading historian, Mark Knoll of Notre Dame, described the collapse of the influence of the informal establishment in this country, the Anglican Church, and its loss of any Christian vision for Canada. And he said this, in the, by the 1940s, he says, representatives of Canada's other churches, that's the non-Anglicans, were beginning to manifest considerable strength. They were represented by a host of conservative evangelical bodies. More recently, countrywide associations like the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada have begun the process of drawing locally vital evangelical bodies into some form of national cohesion. Yet although such efforts have become increasingly important, they have not affected the broader society as Catholics and older Protestants had once done. For various reasons, he says, ethnicity, language, a passivity-inducing holiness theology, or a stultifying fixation on biblical prophecy, these other Christians have been content to remain in self-contained social, intellectual, and cultural ghettos. In other words, whilst we may have legitimate criticisms of the informal establishments of Canada in the past, today, in many respects, as we saw yesterday, the church has never seemed to most people so irrelevant. And never have we had less impact upon the culture around us. When Paul is writing this letter, he's in chains, he's in prison. You think about the words there of Ephesians 1, and imagine writing about the power, the all-conquering power of Christ while you're sat there in your chains. Paul is not thinking about the all-conquering power of Nero as he languishes there in a Roman prison. Nero at the time, by the way, just to show you that there is nothing new under the sun, had married two men. One whom he castrated and related to as a wife, the other, two he, the other he related to as a husband. He was a catamite and a sodomite, if you want the actual technical terms. And while he was doing these things, he was using Christians to... As, as human torches to light up his gardens. That's how much Nero hated the church. And here Paul is in prison writing to the church in Ephesus. And his focus is not on the terrible character of his situation. His oppression, his marginalization. He's thinking about the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that he is Christ's ambassador. Now, Scripture says, does it not, that we are ambassadors of Christ. Now, we read over these texts and we don't take in and think about the significance of what's being said. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is somebody, or a high commissioner, is somebody who represents the national sovereignty of a foreign sovereign power, of a different sovereign power in foreign territory. So the Canadian or British, and I think they've recently started sharing facilities because we're broke these days, uh, the Canadian and British embassies in other parts of the world are 
sovereign territory of Canada or the United Kingdom or the United States in those countries. And if you attack an embassy, what have you done? You've attacked that country. You've attacked their sovereign territory. That's the idea of embassies. That's why, you know, if you're in trouble in a foreign country, you go to the Canadian embassy. Because you're then on Canadian soil, even though you may be in a completely different part of the world. Now, the reason, by the way, that the church, just about still today, does not pay tax. You can't tax a foreign embassy. The British embassy in Sudan does not pay tax to the Sudanese government. It doesn't pay property taxes because the embassy is sovereign territory. Now, historically in the Western world, people understood that Christians were Christ's ambassadors and they represent his sovereignty. You can't tax his embassy. Now, as the uh, belief in the lordship of Jesus Christ has waned, so the attack upon the church's independence and it's, for example, in Toronto, they are now uh, increasingly trying to make sure that when any new churches are built in the GTA, that any space that is erected not specifically for serving communion in or preaching or singing, that is your tax-free space. But if you have a gym like this or an educational facility, that's taxable. The limiting, the truncation of the church's sovereign territory. The church is God's embassy. We are Christ's ambassadors. Paul has in mind, as he sits there in a Roman prison, as he writes to the church in Ephesus that is under the imperial cult of Rome, the emperor cult, where the emperor is worshipped as a god, the authority of Jesus Christ. You can never understand the early church until you understand the audacity of their claim about Jesus. How did 120 people in the upper room in the early chapters of the book of Acts end up within a few hundred years conquering Rome itself without force of arms? How is that possible? It's because they believed what Paul said about Jesus Christ. They believed what Jesus said about himself. And they lived as men in terms of it. Now, in verses 10 through 13 of chapter 1, we're told that salvation history has been unfolding in a series of times and seasons, and that finally now, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the messianic age has been revealed. Times and seasons have culminated in the person of Christ. What is it the Apostle Paul says? He says, we are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. The end of the ages has come because Christ is the God-man in the flesh, the Messiah King, and we are the ones upon whom this final age has come, the age of the Messiah. And this means that all things in all creation, in heaven and in earth, Paul tells us, are being subsumed and subdued under the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this era must run its course, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, until the consummation of all things is brought about and death itself is defeated. Everything is going to add up to Christ, in other words. 
even though we don't see it now. Do you think Paul saw it there in a Roman prison? He had to live by faith, not by sight. He had to believe God's word over what appeared to be the impossible circumstances of Nero's persecution of the church, of his imprisonment, and of the seemingly impossible odds of these prophecies being fulfilled. At the end of everything, though, Paul tells us in Romans 8, everything is going to add up to Christ's preeminence over all things, the entire cosmos. In previous ages, God had allotted a bit of land to the Hebrews. Now He was allotting the cosmos that we are, we are told in Scripture, joint heirs with Christ. Christ is called in Hebrews the heir of all things. And you and I as sons, we're told that we are sons. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are the heirs of all things in Him. That's what it means, of course, to be a son, is it not? That, uh, especially if you're the eldest son or the eldest non-delinquent son, is that you have a double portion of the inheritance. Sons and heirs. This is the imagery that runs throughout the New Testament, that we are in Christ sons and heirs, joint heirs with Christ. And it means, according to Paul in verse 11, that everything in history is working out in terms of the counsel of His will, of God's will, of God's purpose. That's why Paul could sit there in chains and have this absolute confidence because he knew and believed that he had obtained, verse 11, an inheritance being predestined in terms of God's purposes and that all things were being worked out in terms of the counsel of God's will. That's why Paul can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Really, he has in this passage then a prayer of intercession. He tells the church he's been remembering them in his prayers. Verse 16, think about that. He's not actually saying to them at the beginning, I'm in a terrible situation, please pray for me, please send me money, please... uh, come and look after me. He says, I've been praying for you. (laughs) Where I am, in my I'm praying for you because I've heard about your faith and I'm rejoicing in it. He wants them to know God, the Father of glory, more fully. Verse 18 tells us what he wants them to know. What does he want them to know and understand? This is his prayer. This is Paul's prayer for the church, and this is what we need to know as men. In light of who Jesus is and the way God is working out His purposes in history, He says, I would that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that your understanding would be enlightened. This is what men need in our time, enlightened understanding. That we may know what is the hope of His calling. There are actually four things that Paul focuses on here. Their hope, their calling, their inheritance, and Christ's power. 
their hope, their calling, their inheritance, and Christ's power. He wants them to appreciate that they inherit all the wealth of God himself. So he wants them to have this spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now that tells us, brothers, that we are not going to grasp all of this without the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This isn't just about techniques. And if you came to this uh, conference this time to hear about a few techniques for conquering this or that, well, there's tons of books on those things. And they have some value. But as I said yesterday, our task as men, if we're going to grow in our understanding, is to begin theologically to understand who we are. He wants them to see first the hope that is theirs. And what is the nature of that hope? He doesn't say the hope is heaven. An aspect of our hope, of course, is the kingdom of God, which comes down out of heaven. But the hope that they have is tied up with their calling. Our hope, you see, is not simply in pie in the sky when we die, as a friend of mine says in England. It's steak on the plate while we wait. Our hope concerns our calling in Christ Jesus, in time and eternity. And so our hope is tied up with the purpose, the task that God has for us, a God whose dominion shall never end, we're told, that we actually participate in as men. And he wants, thirdly, our understanding to be enlightened concerning the riches of the glory of our inheritance. Now, again, these aren't my words. This is Paul here. You can see it in the text. The eyes of our understanding to be enlightened with respect to the glory of his inheritance, that is, the covenant joys, rewards, and responsibilities that are ours in Christ as a kingdom of priests. And lastly, that we might know the greatness, the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. That we would actually believe in the power of God. Our hope is tied up with our calling. Our calling has to do with our inheritance, the kingdom of God. And if we cannot grasp the significance of this or how this might be possible, Paul says that we might know the exceeding greatness of His power. His power to us who believe. Because when we look at our circumstances, our family lives, our marriages, our churches, our working situation, our cultural situation, it isn't changeable in terms of our power, is it? It isn't enough just to have a good pep talk, a quick rah-rah, slap me a high-five, let's get out there. That is, doesn't do it. We need the power of the resurrection of a Christ who is, Paul says, far above all principality and power and might, and dominion, and every name that is named. Now, I want to ask you, brothers, this morning, do we believe that? Because that really is the question. Is Christ above every name? Does He have a power, and authority, and a might that is above every name that is named? And notice Paul specifically says, not only in this world or this age, 
but in the age to come. Now, we tend to think, well, yeah, of course Christ has a name above every name in the age to come. But Paul says, not only in this world now, but in that which is to come. This is the basis of the Great Commission, which we often misquote. Because when you say to the average Christian, what is the Great Commission? They say, yeah, I know, it's go into all the world and preach the gospel. Yeah, but how does it begin? It begins by Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, because of this, you can go and disciple and discipline, teach the nations. proof text of the early church alluded to here is Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit, at, sit you at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now the allusions that Paul makes here in Ephesians 1 to the right hand and far above and so forth, certainly when I was a young Christian as a young man, you know, I tended to think of them in spatial terms. So Christ is up there and he's sitting on God's right hand. But actually, the elevation doesn't have to do with space, of course. It has to do with his exaltation above every power, above Nero, above Caesar, above every god of this world. And the right hand is the place of authority. It's the seat of authority and power. And he's not simply standing, he's sitting to rule. That's what it means. There is no living title in heaven or earth known among men or angels that is not subject to Jesus Christ. Now, we have to start to think and live in terms of that if our age is going to change, if our families are going to change. Paul says this finally means that God's placed everything under his feet, and remarkably in verse 22, this Christ, this glorious Christ above all power and authority is given as a gift to whom? The church. That's us. He's been given as head over all things to us as the church. As James Boyce puts it, this really is a reference to Psalm 8. Remember Psalm 8? God has put all things under our feet. You've what is man? You are mindful of him, the son of man. You care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels and the gods. Crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything under his feet. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is what Boyce says. He says, the psalmist affirms man's dominion on earth. Here, Paul in Ephesians 1 claims that Christ, as God's new man, has universal dominion. Man largely forfeited his status through sin, but through Christ as the ideal man. Man is restored to his proper dignity. So far from constituting a threat to the realization of true humanity, the Christian gospel provides the only means by which it can be attained. The church has authority and power to overcome all opposition because her leader and head is Lord of all. Now, the word for church there, which you're familiar with, I'm sure, is ecclesia, derived from a Greek word meaning to call out. The common term for the congregation of the ecletoi. The ecletoi 
really referred to uh, representatives of civil authority who were assembled together in terms of the public affairs of a free state or realm in the Greco-Roman world. They were a, a council of government. And Paul takes that word and he applies it to the church. And says, this is who we are. We are a called out congregation as ambassadors in terms of the public affairs of the kingdom of God. This means the church is an international body, an organism called out in, with a universal jurisdiction that Christ has given us in terms of his authority. And so our hope, brothers, is concerned, is tied up with our calling in history and in eternity. It's not, our hope is not that simply one day we're going to be in a place called heaven. As the Bible says, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. In which there is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So many Christians have got their ticket and they're just waiting for the train to glory. And in the meantime, they're just trying to be nice to their neighbors. This is not the gospel. The very word gospel, good news, means the declaration that Christ is on his throne to herald the news of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our hope is that we have been called in terms of the purposes of God for time and eternity. And that Christ is our King. And we as men serve as princes with God in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the biggest problems in the Christian church today is that we do not know who we are. We don't understand the privilege of our position. We don't understand the significance of our call. We don't understand the depth and reach of our authority. Later in Ephesians 3.10, Paul states that the unsearchable riches of Christ through whom all things have been created have now been revealed with the specific intent that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known by the church. Ephesians 3.10. And friends, there is no church without strong men. Without godly men called by God who recognize their calling, the church goes into steep decline and falls and fails. What is it that God is doing then in and through Christ Jesus our Lord? Paul tells us in verse 10 of this chapter, Ephesians 1, he's gathering together all in one all things in Christ which are in heaven and on earth. We talked about this last night from Colossians chapter 1. But this is the foundation of a biblical theology that this God and King, Christ Jesus, is requiring us to assert His crown rights in every aspect of creation as His ambassadors, as representatives of His sovereign authority. Now, have you seen your Christian life as a man in these terms? Or are you just a number who's waiting to have, be, be transported into an ethereal experience 
of the spiritual life when Jesus comes again. In the meantime, well, I've got, I suppose I've got to hold down a job and, you know, provide for my family and so on. But that's what, that's the hope. There is a comprehensive, all-encompassing character to our calling in which nothing is left out, where Christ is to be preeminent in all things. And that's our battle. That's our struggle. That's our fight. As Pastor Andy said yesterday, that's why Scripture refers to us as soldiers, that Paul's favored image for the Christian is a militaristic one. And if that doesn't appeal to us as men, nothing will. That we're actually called in terms of a kingdom as princes with God to press the battle to the gates and the the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We are called, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, to bring all things into captivity to Jesus Christ. Captivity to Christ. So what is reinforced to us here in this passage is the doctrine of Christ and His church, that we are His called-out body, and that we are moving out into history, sent out into history as men, into this world with a supernatural power that's from beyond history. That we are not simply caught up in the cogs of historical eventuation. Jesus was asked by Pilate, are you a king? He says, well, you say it is so. He says, but my kingdom is not from this world. Now, he didn't say it's not in the world. He says, otherwise, my followers would have fought to prevent my arrest. In other words, if the power of my kingdom were by the strong arm of man, I wouldn't be here before you today, or at least there would have been a, a battle before I would have been arrested. This kingdom is, has a power from beyond history. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 1 here that we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things after the counsel of His will. Our authority and power is not, beca- is not from, is not given to us by the world or by the state or by any human personage given to us by God. We are the people of the King of Kings with a calling to reign in life. And so Paul says, no matter what our current circumstances may be, we are more than conquerors through Him who has loved us, Romans 8.37. And that's why he can write like this from prison in a time where the church is being viciously persecuted, where most of us would be curled up in fetal position, utterly depressed, We feel like that often. We are a kingdom of priests under the great high priest. We are salt and light, the Lord says. And we have a responsibility, therefore, and a high rank in God's kingdom because we, as a kingdom of priests, are interceding and mediating the glory of the gospel to the world. When the Scripture says, for example, pray for kings and governments and those in authority, we don't understand the implications of what Paul is saying there. The emperor is the one who prays for you. (coughs) What, you are going to mediate for the emperor and the king? 
To pray for those in authority means to invoke a greater and a higher power. And to claim that we represent a higher authority. That's why Jesus had the dialogue with Pilate that he did. You would have no power over me, save it have been given you from above. In our day, we are so accustomed to seeing the church in retreat that considering our status and position in Christ to teach all the nations everything Christ has commanded seems utterly far-fetched. Some of you older guys may be thinking, well, Joe, you're still, you know, youngish and idealistic. This is far-fetched. Really? You think it seemed any less far-fetched to the readers in the first century? Surrounded by the paganism that they were? We're in a context, yes, of rapid paganization. Secular humanism is on the wane. Humanism is with us, but it's a pagan form of humanism today. It's taken many by surprise. We see the church in distress. We see our buildings becoming nightclubs and mosques and condominiums and so on and so forth. And such is a time when we cannot distance ourselves from Christ and the church. Most people's perception of the church in our culture is that Christianity is for weeds, for weak men, believe nothing, who are led by women. Yet our forebears through the 19th and 17th through 19th century rejected and fought secularization and paganism. The modern church has tended to go with the flow and accommodate itself to this process. And one of the key reasons for this is that in earlier centuries, there was a full-orbed, robust, comprehensive, thoroughly biblical worldview that permeated the lives of Christians, even amongst those who were relatively uneducated. Believers were taught and trained and catechized and affirmed in their calling in the world as a holy and sacred calling, that their vocations were holy unto the Lord, that they were to redeem all things in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ, that their faith was a public, not simply a private matter. Today, evangelical faith for many people is a part-time, personalist, spare-time philosophy that's like golf or yoga or tennis. I still, still deal with people in my own church who think that if they come to church once every three weeks, they're doing God a favor, and they're regular worshipers. Some studies of North American Christianity reveal that seven out of ten churchgoers have zero relationship with the life of the church outside of a Sunday morning service. You add up all the tithes of the North American church, it adds up to 2%. And yet the tithe is God's tax for the establishment of His kingdom. That's the purpose of the tithe. We can come to that in Q&A. I haven't got time to deal with it now. I don't want to digress there, as it will never be done in five minutes. But that's its purpose. That's the purpose of the tithe. To such people, Christ is not Lord, who has a name above every name with total authority, who commands us. He's a servant of mine. Useful to me on my terms, periodically when I'm in trouble or need therapy or need some help. 
It's ironic that in an age where evangelicals are obsessed with relevance, seeker sensitivity, megachurch consumer paradigms, church growth movements, the emergent go-with-the-flow church, we've never been so irrelevant or more powerless. And if we retreat and endlessly accommodate ourselves to the philosophies of our time, we will continue in impotence in the face of a neo-pagan culture. We're losing 80 to 90% of our children by the age of 23, according to most studies in the church today. If we were just to retain our own children, the church would be 80% better off in the next generation. One of the reasons for that is we've abandoned the Christian calling of education. Brian Abshire, one American theologian, has written, he says, the Puritans did not see Christianity as a spare-time religious philosophy to help them cope with an angst-ridden world. To the contrary, their religious convictions brought suffering, persecution, imprisonment, and death. They integrated their doctrine with a consistent biblical worldview which offered practical application to every area of life. If God granted modern North American evangelical Christians a new continent filled with wilderness and beasts and natives, they and then allowed us to settle and form a new Christian nation there, we could not do today what our spiritual forebears did. Most Christians would say that it couldn't be done. The Bible doesn't give us a blueprint for a Christian culture. Others would say it shouldn't be done. We're living in the last days, so why waste the resources? And others finally would say it shouldn't be done. You don't polish brass on a sinking ship. And he's right. Is it possible, brothers, that we have been privatized, pietized with a truncated vision of the gospel that does not bear resemblance to the God of Ephesians 1, a God far above all power and authority. We have to recapture this vision of the church as men, that this is our calling. As one writer has captured it well, the church is God's armory for the application of the aspects of God's image. The church issues God's conscription, trains the troops for action, and sends them out to to conquer in Christ's name. Very often still, the prevailing notion is abroad that unless somebody's work has something directly to do with the building, the kariakos of the institutional church, they're not doing ministry. Yet, we're told in Scripture that we are all priests and we are all Christ diaconate. We're not all presbyters. We're not all elders. We're not all called as pastors and teachers. But we are all Christ diaconate. We are all Christ's priesthood. We are the ecclesia, the called out people in terms of the kingdom of God. And the real ministry is happening out there every day. That's the ministry of the church. The church's role is to equip and train and send us out. So that we will be the organic church in terms of the kingdom of God out there. That's our ministry. And this encompasses every single sphere. They didn't see our forebears, the sphere of God's reign, as the church property. They saw it as the whole world. Many of us place too much hope in the idea that if we could just get a Christian counselor, if we could just get a Christian president, if we just have a Christian prime minister, then they could turn things around. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. 
You can't get into that sort of position authority without so many compromises of the Christian gospel and faith and word of God that you, you wouldn't get power today. It's a, it has to be a grassroots transformation. This is how the early church did it. This is how we are going to be required to do it. The horse has already bolted, and by saying, well, let's just get a Christian MP in our local area, which is important. We shouldn't shy away from doing that. We should try that. We should be involved in that. But the horse is 30 furlongs away right now, and we're shutting the gate. We have to recover this for our families, for our churches, for our culture. Not by revolution and tyranny, that's not the way of Christ, but by regeneration, by rebuilding, by teaching, so that finally people will demand righteous laws. And then they will demand righteous government. And they will demand godly education. Because they've been transformed. And we do all these things because we have an ultimate calling to judge and to rule in Jesus Christ for time and eternity. We have that calling. Do you not know, says Paul, that you will judge angels? Are there not godly men among you, he says, who can judge in these matters? Why do you go to law against your brother? Be better that you were defrauded, he says, than to go to law against your brother in Christ. Where are the men in this church, he says, to judge in these issues? And they did just that. As one historian says, the church took Paul seriously and church courts became courts of justice. Their record was sufficiently good to attract pagans who wanted justice, knowing that the Roman courts were increasingly both slow and unjust. When Constantine came to power, he recognized this aspect of the church's governmental power, and in certain areas he invested all bishops with legal magisterial powers. With this magisterial power went the garb and insignia of such an office, and bishops to this day wear the insignia of a Roman magistrate. For 600 years, bishops provided effective government. You know all the regalia, the robes of, a Roman, of, a, of an Anglican or Roman bishop? Do you know why their origin? Are the, they are the magisterial robes of a Roman judge. Because as Rome was collapsing with its paganism, the emperors looked to the church and they said, these are the only people who've got anything worth hearing and saying. You want justice, go to them. How can you and I begin in all of this? Let me give you one example as I close. St. John Chrysostom, the great early church father and preacher in the 4th century, when the Christians in Constantinople numbered just 100,000, maintained through the church tithe 50,000 of the poor. Additionally, the clergy were supported along with 3,000 widows. All this was funded not by the state, but by the giving of the people. This fund provided not only for the church needy, but for the destitute as, uh, and pagans as well. And this was their top priority. Chrysostom also served as a judge, according to Paul's injunction in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 6. In fact, the early church transformed the world by the recognition and application of the Lord Jesus Christ, His Lordship over all creation. They established their own courts, their own schools, their own hospitals, their own welfare institutions in terms of Scripture. All of this was done. You and I are still living off the invested capital of earlier generations of Christians in terms of what's left of charity in our countries. 
All the big charities, the famous charities, were started by evangelicals. You look at the names of the oldest hospitals in various cities, they're named after churches and saints because they were paid for by the church. And in the Great Depression, people didn't go to the state for the handouts, the church provided through the tithe. And whom do you think people were grateful to? A faceless bureaucracy or God through his people? This is how the world was changed. And this is why our welfare economies are collapsing. In distress, the apostate emperor, Julian the Apostate, said this, recognizing the pagans were attracted to Christianity by its community life, he says, no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, that's the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Hermas wrote of the Christian duty to care for widows and orphans, to relieve distressed believers, practice hospitality, reverence the age, the aged, practice justice, preserve their brotherhood. All the early literature of the church stressed such responsibilities. Prisoners seized by raiders were ransomed, and the church, like the Jewish synagogue, acted as a trustee for widows and orphans. Cyprian compared the clergy with the Levites of the Old Testament in their responsibilities. The sick and captives were to be visited. Church buildings included rooms for storage and provisions for the needy. Basil the Great used monks to staff schools, orphanages, and hospitals. All this and more was done. The Roman era, the pagan world, left. A, they were an abortionistic culture. Failed abortions, botched abortions. They took the babies, they tossed them beneath the bridges and the aqueducts to be eaten by dogs. Thousands of them. You know what the church did, the Christians did? They collected up all these babies. And they adopted them into Christian homes. And they became believers. And they provided for health, education, and welfare and courts of legal arbitration. These are just glimpses of what the church has done in its history because they believe that the government will be upon his shoulders. As his body, the church manifests Christ to the world. And this vision of the church militant, a church active in history, needs to be recovered in our time. And the onus is on us as men to do it. If we don't do it, nobody will. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.